Well, hello, church family. If memory serves correct, I was last with you in January of last year, and it's good to know you're not superstitious and you invited me back. <laughs> Who knows what I might bring this time? That was a reference to COVID. Um, <laughs> enigma is the Greek word for fables or to speak in riddles. It means something uh, obscure or hard to understand like an inscrutable problem or a mysterious person. It's amazing when you think about it that by far the most written about person in human history should be such an enigma to so many people. Uh, but that's the way it is. Uh, there's no denying it. I pray to Jesus for the good winds, said one Hindu girl, as she told me of a whole list of gods she prayed to. I don't believe he ever existed, said another person. Even among those who revere his name, Jesus is often no more than a remote figure, comforting sometimes, foreboding others, depending on one's own emotional state or sense of guilt. Historically, we know a lot about who Jesus was in the plain sense of the question. He's a Jewish first century uh, itinerant Palestinian teacher. But in the deeper sense, why Jesus was. Now, that is an enigma to many people. Why did Jesus come? To meet felt needs? To be a shining example of personal spirituality? To teach the esoteric insights of the ages or a, a virtuous way to live? Why did Jesus come? At the time of Jesus' own ministry, there were many ideas around. Many thought he'd come simply as a rabbi. After all, he was addressed as rabbi. He proclaimed God's law. He taught in synagogues. He gathered disciples. He debated with scribes. He was asked to settle legal disputes. He even sat when he taught the traditional rabbinic way of teaching. Others saw his miracles and thought that he'd come primarily to perform wonders of healing and exorcism and multiplying food. Some saw him as reincarnated an Old Testament prophet. Others as someone who drove out demons by the power of the prince of demons. He was called a king, a glutton, a drunkard, a prophet, a criminal, a revolutionary, a traitor, God, and a blasphemer. Why did Jesus come? I couldn't think of anything more important to talk to you about, being given this opportunity of being with you again. Let's go to the earliest record we have in the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. Go to chapter one, early on in his ministry. Let's look at a small passage there, verses 35 to 39. Mark chapter one, verses 35 to 39. 
As I say, it's a short passage. It often gets overlooked uh, between miraculous stories before and after it. But I think it has a crucial word for us about why Jesus came. And I trust some good encouragement, Jonathan, for you as you think about the task that God has led you to undertake here in this past decade, and Lord willing, for another to come. Chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So he traveled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Friends, let's look first at Jesus and prayer, then at Jesus and popularity, and finally at Jesus and preaching. So that's the structure if you're taking notes, Jesus and prayer, Jesus and popularity, Jesus and preaching. And see if this helps you to answer the question, why did Jesus come? It was the philosopher Montaigne who said that the greatest thing in the world is to be self-sufficient. And I think in America, more than in most countries, we would agree. If you produce a new movie about somebody who is self-sufficient, you're producing a heroic kind of tale that people will love and they will own as their own. But this passage before us suggests that Jesus was not the independent loner we American individualists might expect. Look at verse 35 and what our passage says about Jesus and prayer. Rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desert place and there he prayed. Now let's just stop right there. Why would Jesus pray? Jesus' praying can seem strange to some people, uh, like the child who wrote, Dear God, who do you pray to? Why, why would Jesus pray? Well, simply we know that Jesus prayed for others and for himself to be strengthened in doing the will of God. He had certainly had an eventful and perhaps a draining day if you look back at the verses above this one. And at the end of the long day and the beginning of another, Jesus gives himself to prayer. I think that helps us to remember that it's not helpful to think of Jesus as some sort of superhero. He was the son of God, yes, certainly he was and is, but he was incarnate. People are, when you read the gospel, it becomes very clear that Jesus was dependent on his heavenly father. He needed guidance. Prayer was there to help Jesus discern what he must teach and how to teach it. 
He was perhaps troubled by the prospect of the popular response to the healings that he had just done, maybe overshadowing his message. And so he prayed that the Lord would give people ears to hear him. His praying was a symbol of his whole life being lived out in fellowship with and in submission to the Father. It was his Father, after all, who had sent him. You can read about that in John chapter 8. And it would have to be his father who would continue to direct him. That's why Jesus would pray. Now, I think we see in this also, though, an example for us very practically. Uh, We have to be practical about prayer. We either do it or we don't. So just look here at the text and notice when Jesus prayed. It says very early in the morning. That's the example Jesus gives us here. Now, I should say quickly that in the Gospels, Jesus prays at other times than early in the morning. He prays in the afternoon in Mark 6, 46. He prays at night, very famously, in Mark 14, later in the chapter. But here he does pray very early in the morning. And that can be a a hard time to pray. Here in our passage, Mark uses these adverbs to emphasize that it was very early. It was still dark, he says. Mark is emphasizing this point. This was long before daybreak, before there was light. People went to work at daybreak. So if you're going to have a time to pray, it'd be necessary to get your quiet time in early before the hustle and bustle of the day began. Well, friends, Jesus worked very hard at his mission So he was beginning the day early before light to pray. And of course, there are reasons to do that. There are great advantages of the morning. There are advantages of the early morning. It's been said that if God isn't our first thought in the morning, he'll be our last thought all day. That's prudence, but normally true. I find in my own life giving the Lord the first fruits, whether it's of the week, like right now on Sunday, or of the the hour of the morning when I first get up, it colors then the whole day. It colors the whole week. They say that races are often determined right out of the starting blocks. So I'm not surprised to see Jesus praying here early in the morning, early in his own ministry. Jonathan and I have both been affected by one preacher you may not have heard of. His name is Charles Simeon. He pastored a congregation for 56 years in Cambridge, England. He was a single man. He had some nice rooms in King's College and he struggled his entire life with getting up early. He thought it would be better if he got up early and prayed, but he didn't like to get up early. And so he decided that he would give the servant who like cleaned up his rooms a pound which was a lot of money in the early 1800s a pound every day he was not up by a certain hour to motivate him to move him and so he found himself getting up early more often but sometimes he would lay there and he would think she could use the extra money (laughs) and I have the money So this morning, I'll give her the pound. 
And then he began thinking that more and more often until finally he realized he was sleeping in just as much as he had been before he started giving her all the pounds. So he decided, right, starting tomorrow morning when I get up, if I get up late, I will throw the pound into the river. Just completely waste the money. And he could not bear the thought of that. So he started getting up early. Well, I don't know what you need to do, what games you need to play with yourself in order to get up early. But I, I, I wonder how late folks here in California are online or on their phones each night. I wonder if disciplining yourself the evening before is part of disciplining yourself in the morning to pray. No wonder early mornings are out for most of us. So I, I note here that he prayed early. Also note, note that he goes to pray alone. Now, I, I don't mean this against corporate prayer. I was very thankful Jonathan just led us in prayer. Jonathan was praying, he was putting words to it, but we all said amen, either out loud or in our hearts. We were agreeing, we were all being led in prayer together. But, but here, Jesus prays alone. He, he leaves the house. If you look above our text, you see that the house is there in the previous day. This was where he went after casting out the demon that morning in the synagogue meeting. This was the house in which he had healed Peter's mother-in-law and at the door of which the town, it says, had gathered just hours before this early morning prayer time. Now here, Jesus is getting up early to pray and trying to find a solitary place to pray would be no easy matter in this little coastal town with its narrow streets and densely populated blocks. Most of the houses were in clusters, in fours, they shared a common courtyard. There could easily be 10 to 20 people in each house. No wonder Jesus rose early and went from this village to an area outside of it. A certain detachment is helpful in prayer, especially if you're busy. The more public you are, the more there is, and that's in showing above the water, the more you better take care to have great weight below the water that people don't see of who you really are, out of sight, in your private life, and most especially before the Lord. So Jesus got up very early and he, by himself, he went away and why did he go away? What was all this for? Well, so that he could pray. Friend, do you ever feel too busy to pray? If you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. Jesus was very busy. And he made time for prayer. Friend, make time for prayer. Discipline yourself spiritually. I know spiritual disciplines may sound like a contradiction to many people today. Spirituality is taken to be essentially spontaneous. So the idea of spiritual discipline sounds like an oxymoron to some people. But I think disciplining ourselves is actually not a contradiction, but it is an essential part of being the spiritual beings God has called us to be. Jesus' example here should make it clear that sometimes we must work very hard 
in our relationship with God. Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. You understand what that proverb means? Proverbs 25, 28, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Modernized, that might be like a man sitting alone in the backseat of an idling car with the doors open in downtown Chicago is one who lacks self-control. You're just ceding all ability to influence yourself. The point is openness to being controlled by things you haven't chosen. And that's what we do when we lose prayer from our lives. Prayer, of course, is communicating with God. You don't have to make an appointment to pray. We have the amazing privilege that we can get together with God more easily than we can even get together with each other. What an amazing privilege. So, look at the effect. It only seems to have confirmed Jesus' sense of direction and purpose. Prayer does this because it reminds us of who we are, uh, God's adopted child in Christ, and of, of what we're about as Christians, doing God's will as we serve him and serve others. And friends, you see how important this is. Do you want to serve others here in this congregation? I defy you to do that in any consistent way without giving yourself to prayer, without putting yourself before the Lord and self-consciously, verbally communicating with him. This is what will grow your relationship with God. This is what will grow the roots of this congregation. Jonathan, this is what God will use to help you serve this congregation for more years. Giving yourself to prayer, to God, to direct time with him. So much for some observations on prayer. In our world today, we're so aware of what other people think that it's easy to be seduced by popularity. Polls are constantly being presented to us, telling us what's popular. You realize the president's popularity rating is pretty insignificant compared to what he does. The poll is just a mirror held up to us for a passing second. And even then the accuracy of a poll is a whole other profession. But what someone does is what's significant. But in our world, through no small part, the efforts of entities in your own state, like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter or TikTok, we have come to be defined by what's popular. We take likes as proving that something is normal. And we think that normal is good and that good is right. So just as disapproval of friends or family or unpopularity of a certain course of action can discourage us, so the popularity can cause us to lose our balance. And if you really want to confuse someone, flatter them. It can be a powerful opium 
making us sensitive to what people around us think, but insensitive to God. God's not gonna like your latest post on Facebook. He may approve of it, but there won't be a little affirming thumbs up. The way you're gonna understand what God thinks of things is by not looking at a screen, but prayer, reflecting on what God has taught you in his word, reflecting on his word. Let's be honest, even a young man's head can be turned by learning of the affection of a pretty girl, popularity, being liked is intoxicating. But have you ever noticed that you're about as popular as what other people think they can get out of you? I don't mean to be too cynical, but that's a part of the world that we live in. And I'm fascinated by looking at Jesus here in this little cameo of how he deals with beckoning popularity. You see, Simon and his companions wanted Jesus. They went out looking for him, and his disciples depended on him, and probably they were a bit frustrated by the time they had found him. Mark writes here, when they found him, they said, and you know, we, we don't know exactly how Mark knew everything he knew to write down. We know the Holy Spirit of God inspired it. It's all inerrant, that's true. As an historian, I'm curious, how did Mark know this? Well, Christians have long thought since the first century it's been recorded that this was actually Peter's testimony, that Mark is writing on Peter's testimony. And to me, that makes sense. Uh, just read through Mark's gospel this afternoon. It's a great thing to do with a Sunday, better than what you were gonna do. Just read through Mark's gospel this afternoon and keep in mind, ah, this is Peter's witness and see if that makes sense. I think it makes sense of some little details you see in Mark's gospel. Well, here, can you imagine, Peter is the one who's told Mark this. And he's remembering that morning. He remembers that amazing time when Jesus, very early in his knowing Jesus, healed his mother-in-law. And, but the next morning, he's nowhere to be seen. After they had this amazing time of healing and casting out demons the night before, stuff Peter had never seen anything like, all of a sudden the next morning, his house guest is gone. What on earth is going on? So he gets some friends, he goes out looking for him. And it says, when they found him, Everyone is looking for you. That sounds like Peter, doesn't it? Everyone. That means like Peter and some of his friends. And maybe a couple of sick people who stopped by in the morning, you know. Everyone is looking for you. The crowds wanted him. And Luke, it even says that the people were out looking for him. I'm sure these disciples were proud of their new master. You can't buy publicity like this. I mean, talk about pyro marketing. They clearly thought this was success. The disciples clearly thought that Jesus not only would want to know that the crowds wanted, but that he would want to do what the crowds wanted. But look at Jesus' response to popular demand. What they wanted wasn't his mission. This is why the consumer is king, is largely good for your business and bad for your church. Jesus knew what the crowds would want to do with him. 
In fact, who knows if it wasn't the very sight of that hungry crowd at his door the night before that lingered on his mind now, even as he prayed so early the next morning. But no referenda or elections established Jesus' agenda. It was set by God above. It was not up for amendment or renegotiation. It would not go to the committee of public demands or popular desires. Jesus had not been popularly elected to his mission and therefore he could not be popularly directed in it. He had been sent by God. Interesting, isn't it, that he was so resolved after just praying. You see what this means for us as individuals. We crave fame and popularity. Or we at least, we want to be liked and respected. An old comedian once observed that a celebrity is a person who works hard all his life to become known, then wears dark glasses to avoid being recognized. Friends, the, the crowd can be wrong. Even though law must be based on the consent of the public, morality never can be ultimately. Our morality, right and wrong, must find a much more certain base, one which has never done an about face. People may sometimes have been confused over whether idolatry or blasphemy, disrespect or sacrilege, murder or adultery, lying or stealing is wrong. But we must never be confused about those things, brothers and sisters, because God never is confused about those things. And he's clearly spoken on all these things. Well, you see what this means for you as a church. For one thing, uh, in Matthew 18, Jesus calls the church to reason and even to vote to dismiss unrepentantly sinning members. But that does not mean the church is ruled by an opinion poll. No, the church is called sometimes to make serious judgments. I remember as a young pastor at a small congregation and our budget was in the red, and we had Wednesday night dinners at six o'clock on Wednesday nights, which were beloved of all the older members, which were all the members. And we employed a, a cook named Cleveland to prepare the meals, and his rolls were rightly the stuff of legend. Cleveland's rolls were wonderful, even still. Any of the 20 or 30 of us left at the church who still remember Cleveland's rolls speak of them with awed respect. And yet, as the young pastor, I needed to tell the congregation, we need to cut this money from our budget. So I needed to help them realize at this members meeting that I needed them to vote on, we're not voting on whether or not we like Cleveland's rolls. We're not voting on whether or not we like Cleveland. We're not voting on whether or not we like having this dinner. We're voting on understanding all the facts in our church should we spend $10,000 doing this. And we understood as a congregation that we should not. Friends, that's the kind of wisdom we have to work as a church to exercise sometimes. We have to think carefully. We have to try to understand what will be faithful and fruitful. Congregation, that's how you need to pray for your pastor. His accountability to God comes even before his accountability to you. So yes, he should do things you like. 
Sometimes, maybe many times, probably not always. He should always do what God likes. And he has no private access to that through personal revelation. That comes from the word of God, explicitly and implicitly by reasoning. So pray for Jonathan to have wisdom. Giving may go down, attendance may go up. Neither one determines what Jonathan should do. Much more we could say about this, fruitful to reflect on, but I leave you to your own reflections on popularity. I wanna come finally and most importantly, I think in this to Jesus and preaching. George Orwell once wrote that each generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. It's amazing in all we do how much we assume our own intelligence. And it's amazing to watch Jesus assume our own ignorance. We think we are wise owls. He calls us dumb sheep. You look at why he says he came in verse 38. Jesus answers the question why. That's, that's why I picked this passage for this sermon. Because of what he says in verse 38, because he's just so clear here. It gives us insight into who he is. Certainly, to be clear, Jesus is a king. He is the Messiah. He would come again. We have all the sayings in the gospels about Jesus, the son of man, the son of God, coming from heaven, coming again. The whole title Messiah itself means anointed one. It points to his kingly office. Jesus clearly had authority over sickness and disease. He showed that the night before in Capernaum at Peter's house. He had authority over the plans of people's lives as he called the disciples to leave what they were doing and follow him. Even the demons recognized the spiritual authority he had over them. We've seen that in the chapter in Mark's gospel earlier in verse 24 at the synagogue in Capernaum and then the night before this time of prayer. Jesus came as our king. He also comes as our priest. Jesus went on and this was the heart of his mission, his priesthood. In the, in the climax of Jesus' teaching later in Mark's gospel, where would you say the climax in Jesus' teaching is? Somebody give me a chapter and a verse in Mark's gospel. You have to put up a hand. A chapter and a verse in Mark's gospel. Where would you say is the climax of its teaching? And just to comfort you, this is subjective. We could all be right or all be wrong. I'm just going to let you share a few of your ideas, and then I'll tell you what I think the right idea is. Mark's gospel. Climax of the teaching. We will not go on until I get one or two answers to this. Come on. No, Jonathan, you're the pastor. Anyone else? I put up your hand. What's your name? Lewis. Lewis? What, 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 what are you thinking of? <laughs> Lewis, why are they laughing when I say your name? <laughs> uh, okay, still go ahead, brother. That's all right. 16, verse 8, they're fearing at the resurrection. Oh, yeah, okay, all right. So maybe something other than that. Uh, yep, tell me your name. Stephen? I think so. 
Stephen says 1045, yeah, you remember what Mark 1045 is? It's Jesus being so clear about what he's come to do. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think that's the clearest statement in Mark's gospel about his overall purpose, to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you think of the traditional prophet, priest, and king, you know, we said he's a king, he's the Messiah. Priest is absolutely central. So if you want to understand this, particularly if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is, this is your, your key way to come into understanding who Jesus is. Jesus presented himself as someone who had come to literally die as a sacrifice for the sins of people like you, for, for my sins and Pastor Jonathan's sins and Pastor Luis's sins and Stephen's sins and all kinds of people's sins, whoever would turn and trust in him. So this death he presents as a ransom that is, he will deliver us from the death and judgment that we deserve by his death. He will pay the price that we can't pay to give us freedom, freedom from the bondage to sin, the, 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 the penalty to sin that we are due. So again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, there's no way Jonathan could better celebrate 10 years here than by talking to you after the service this morning about why Jesus came and what that means in your life. If you wanna know the new life and forgiveness and restored relationship to God you could have today, please talk to the Christian you came with or talk to Jonathan or Luis, or it sounds like Stephen or, uh, or others that you would know here. Because friend, I used to be an agnostic and becoming a Christian is by far the best decision I've ever made in my life. And I'm over 60 years old. So think about it. Come to understand who Jesus is. Understand what it means that he came to die as a ransom. So Jesus came as a king, the Messiah. He came as a priest to give himself as a ransom. But in our passage, that's not what's front and central. This is very early in his public teaching. And here, he really is presenting himself in his prophetic role. As a, as a teacher, as a, a preacher. This is a broader way Jesus talks of why he came. If you look in Mark chapter one and verse 15, he's clearly speaking out this message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And here in our passage in verse 38, he says it clearly, this is why I came out so I can preach. So that I can preach is why I have come. Just as he would one day tell Pilate, I came into the world to testify to the truth. So he had preached in the synagogue the previous day from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That word for uh, anointed is the same as the word at the root of Messiah. And this is what he is the Messiah for. I was sent 
Jesus said to the disciples to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And note that he goes on to preach after he prays, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And so he did. Jesus, just as he had taught in the synagogues in Nazareth and in Capernaum, so now he did throughout Galilee. And, and how he taught. There is teaching and there is teaching. Uh, I don't know if you have done much reading around of religious leaders. I read just about everybody before I read Jesus. Uh, I tried to read about uh, Gautama, the Buddha. And he, what verb do we use in English? He gave advice. Christ announced and commanded. His teaching was distinctive. He taught like a rabbi, yes, sort of, but also differently. And he didn't just teach in synagogues, but in open fields and out in the countryside. And he didn't just teach his close disciples, he taught women, which rabbis did not do then. He taught tax collectors, that is political traitors. He taught sinners, people who openly broke God's law. He taught children that people weren't even sure were morally to be considered moral agents. And he taught his disciples baldly to follow him. And his words had power. When Jesus says here, this is why I've come out, he clearly means teaching as opposed to the kind of miraculous works that were drawing the crowds. But it was not that he wanted mere words instead of action. These powerful deeds of wonders and miracles were little pictures of the truth of his message. They called attention to his words. They illustrated their truth. His words were effective. And so you see verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So his power underscored his preaching and teaching. Jesus had come to teach and proclaim as no one else ever had before. And so he shocks the Pharisees, telling them that he had come to call sinners to repentance. And he stuns one notorious sinner, telling him, I came to seek and to save that which was lost, he says to Zacchaeus in Luke 19. You see what we learn about our mission from this as individuals. We follow along, we're to work as he did till he comes back. We're to proclaim his death till he comes. That's what we say when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And primarily we do this with the spoken word. That's why this group of people is sitting here with their mouths closed and their ears open listening to one guy's talk. It's a great picture of the way God's salvation comes to us. We receive it. Contribute nothing to it. It comes as a gift. We hear God's words ourselves. That's a central task of our discipleship. And we're to speak it out ourselves. In that sense, our, our lives become a kind of sounding board which gives credence to the message and amplifies it and makes it clear. You realize this, this microphone is no good at all if I don't say something. <laughs> 
your life is kind of like a microphone. Only people are always saying things through it. Your life is communicating something. Something is coming out your mouth and your actions. What is your life a microphone for? Neutrality, turning the station off, being silent, doesn't exist. Your life is for something. There is some spiritual agent speaking through you and the way you live and talk. You see what you're to learn about this for the mission of your church. Jesus came out to teach the primary mission you have been given as a local church is to hear God's word, be created by God's spirit using his word, and then turn and giving that word out to others. So these nine o'clock times like we had this morning, and I think you're gonna have more of starting in November. That's another way you can use your time together. Uh, in this morning service, the fact that you have a sermon at the middle of it where God's word is open and we stare at it together and you're taught it in your Bible studies, personally and in small groups. As you reflect on Jonathan's role among you, this should be what you see being primary in the life of your pastor as far as the ministry in this church goes. His time must be centered on the word. Not that he loves preaching instead of people, but God has called Jonathan to love you people by preaching. That's probably the main unique way, as opposed to just being a member of the church, which there are duties on all the ones who are members of the church, but Jonathan, as the main preaching pastor, has special duties to love you by preaching. So almost every day, I'm, I'm sure Jonathan sees ads, texts, emails, telling him how he can succeed in doing what he's doing. Visit this person, counsel that one, change this, ask them for that. Let's have more of this or less of that. Come to this seminar, it's the key. Come to our conference, uh, look at this series of videos. I could go on and on and on, but here in this story in Mark 1 is the answer. The answer is this message which God has sent Jesus to proclaim. This is what Jonathan must be about. And this is what you must want him to be about. This is what you must keep him to be about. And if he stops being about this, you must get rid of him. I don't mean kill him, I mean fire him. But talk to him first. His utility is specifically to serve you in this way. I hope you can see evidence of that as you look back over the last 10 years. If you can see evidence of how God has used Jonathan's teaching of the word, whether privately in conversations with you or publicly, I would like you this week to send him an email in which you give one specific example of something that you've learned from him about the ministry of the word and about following Christ in your own life. You can do that if you're here for the first time. You can do that if you've been a member for years. You can do that if you're a member of his own family. Send him an email explaining how this particular thing I have learned from you, from your teaching of God's word. Remember that whatever trials or difficulties you face, whatever comforts or encouragements you know, it is God 
who has equipped you, Jonathan, to be a minister of his word and particularly a pastor of this people who are his. And he must always be the ultimate reason that you study and pray and care and teach. Thank God for his blessing on your ministry. Thank God for the way that's evident here. Pray that it continue. Become a student of your own heart increasingly. Pray for God to soften your heart toward him and the hearts of those he calls you to serve. In an urban area like San Diego, this can be a changing group of people he calls you to pastor. There are a lot of military folks here. There'll be some students here. I'm just curious, if you were here as a member of this church or whichever the several churches have come to compose this current church, if you were here before Jonathan was around, please stand up. And Jonathan, feel free and stand and look, look around and see who's standing. Okay, so these are the people who were part of this church before Jonathan was here. That's good to see. Glad you guys stayed. I hope it's been a good decade. He's not offering a refund. Now I'm curious, so visitors, please remain seated like CHBC dudes, don't stand up. But if, uh, if you're visiting with us today and you've, you, you've, you've not, you're not a member of the church, stay seated. But if you're a member of this church and you've joined since Jonathan came, please stand up. Now Jonathan, again, you might wanna stand up and look around so you can see this. You might even want to come up here, I don't know, try to get a better sight of it all. Just stay standing for a moment. Okay. John, you might want to look over to your right. You got a lot of them over here. <laughs> Great, thank you. Please be seated. Brother, thank God for the charge he's given you of this large, though changing congregation. Thank God that you faithfully stay here. When sometimes people leave, just break your heart that they go. Maybe they're not going for any bad reason. Maybe they just got a job transfer or a parent needed caring for or any one of a hundred good reasons. But praise God that he has given a church which he loves so much, we know from Acts 20, 28, he purchased by his own blood, an extraordinary verse, that he's given you charge to care for something that is so dear to his heart. What a privilege that is. But praise God for his kindness in that. Continue to be devoted to God's service here. Don't be conformed to the world or do things out of fear of man like we talked about a little bit last night. Uh, don't let that be you. Be willing to deny yourself. Don't cover the ministerial success of others. There'll be always a lot of guys out there who aren't as successful as you, that's no ground for pride, and who are more apparently successful than you. That's no ground for discouragement. Keep being faithful with the sheep that God has entrusted to you. Don't neglect prayer, especially prayer against the pride in your own heart. Prayer against your own coldness toward God. Don't neglect your family. I'm so thankful for evidence that I see that you, you don't do that, but continue to be vigilant as that. I know when they're not two, but they're 12, when they're not eight, but they're 18 or 28, it may seem like they don't need you as much, and in a sense that's true, but they need you in a different way. And it's a good time, it's a wonderful time for you to be husband and father. And don't ever forget about the amazing things that God can do.
you know, if the Lord tarries and gives you life and you have 10 more years, let's say, at this church, there might be things that are going to happen that aren't anywhere in your mind right now that are good. I don't mean some disaster that's about to happen. No, that too could be there. But brother, there could be good things that you never plan or scheme for. Just like if you look back over this last decade, my guess is some of the highlights are some things you didn't plan for. But God simply provided when, when this couple moved here or that woman got saved or this family joined the church. When no one else around you is mindful of that, remember that that's how you're called to serve God, to look with the eyes of faith on any person or any situation, regardless of how unpromising it may at first look. You know the God who can change things far beyond the guy with the biggest bank account. You know the God who really can make things new. Keep giving yourself to preaching and for preparation for preaching in meditating and praying and studying and, and writing and preach the whole counsel of God. Preach the truth. Preach it with passion and practical application. And clearly, emphatically, and always preach the gospel. Just like you saw me talk to people here who aren't Christians. It doesn't matter if there's one or 30, or maybe people who think there are Christians that really aren't. Your own congregation needs to hear the gospel every week. That's the hope that we have for the life that we live. One of the strangest encouragements I've gotten from members of our church when they come back from being on vacation for two or three weeks is they come back and after the service at the end, I'll be standing at the door at the back afterwards and they'll say, it was so good to hear the gospel preached again. Because they've been in churches where the assumption is the gospel is for the non-Christian and people who come to church don't need to hear it because they believe the gospel, that's why they're here. Don't ever adopt that kind of thinking. The good news of Jesus is our happy place. I mean, that is what makes our souls sing. We, we never tire of hearing it. Keep telling the people the good news about Jesus. And sometimes you'll even find the saved people get really saved, you know? You just can't know in the mysterious will of God all the stuff that's going on. So you keep giving out the good stuff, plainly, fervently, diligently, always with a focus on glorifying God in the gospel and always with love. I love what one friend said about preaching about how, you know, it's, it's kind of like you're in baseball and you're not trying to hit the ball over the fence every time. You know, you just wanna get the, the bat to connect with the ball. And hitting singles week in, week out moves the work of the Lord forward. When I come and preach at another church like this, I deliberately do not try to find, oh, that was a great sermon, you gotta preach that one again. I don't think that's good. It wouldn't be good for my soul to think I'm that good a preacher all the time. You know, like I picked the best sermon I've preached in the last 10 years. I think it's a really bad thing to do. I wanna preach a super normal sermon. Now this is different because it's partly to you on this anniversary occasion. I don't do that Sundays at my church. But all the other stuff about popularity and prayer and preaching, it was just straight up the kind of things I would tell my congregation and do because I wanted to preach a normal sermon because the normal work of God is what he uses with his church. So work to be faithful and never forget that this day will pass. I will quickly be gone. Days of special commemoration and celebration will pass. New trials will come. Satan doesn't retire from attacking a minister just because he sees he's lasted 
10 years. That doesn't intimidate him. But remember this, Jonathan, every trial you ever meet, you will outlast. Every single one. So as weeks turn into months and months into years, keep your eye on the one that you're serving. And when you're tempted to pride, consider what was the earthly conclusion of Christ's faithful ministry. When you're tempted to discouragement, consider the promises that we have in him. And at all times, remember who you're finally working for. Now, what quotation would I probably drop into a sermon right now? Maybe the one that I used even this morning in the nine o'clock time, John Brown's letter of paternal counsels to a newly ordained pastor over a small congregation. Uh, friends, I, I use this quotation about every third sermon I ever give, it seems like. It's just so good. If you've memorized it, just say it along with me as I read it. I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. This world merely counts souls. It's your calling to weigh them. Pray for numerical growth, yes, by all means, but pray for spiritual growth in whatever form God would bring it for his glory. So friends, Jesus came with a tremendous sense of direction and purpose. In fact, he came as none of us here this morning have ever come. He came into this world by choice for a reason. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the pastor Timothy, reminding him Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came, he was sent, not to take a poll and find out what people perceive their needs to be, but to announce the kingdom and preach the good news, the good news that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And that sinners should now repent, turn from their sins, and believe this good news and so be saved. Friend, why do you think Jesus came? That would be a good thing for you to talk about when we conclude the service in a few minutes. Why do you think Jesus came? Don't you see it? He came for you. And that's why Jonathan spent his last decade here and why we hope in Christ's service, he'll continue. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the ministry that you've provided for us in sending your own son. We thank you for the provision you have made for us. We pray, Lord, that that provision will be enjoyed and proclaimed faithfully here in this community until Christ returns. We pray particularly for Jonathan and his family, that you will bless him in his service of you, that you will anoint his words 
and empower his speaking and teaching. Give him wisdom and insight, faithfulness, and crown his deeds with love and with many men and women coming to know you and being built up in you. For the good of this church and for your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.